0: You know, when a woman is pregnant, nine months seems like a long, long time. But ladies, be thankful you're not a rhinoceros who's pregnant for 15 months or an elephant. Two years. Imagine ladies being pregnant 24 straight months. You would need more than a baby book to collect the mementos. You would need a trunk. (laughs) But the nation Israel was pregnant with promise, not for nine months or for 15 months or for 24 months, but for 483 years. That's 5,796 months. Daniel chapter 9 predicted a duration of 483 years or 173,880 days from the command to rebuild Jerusalem until the coming of the Messiah. The decree was issued by Persian King Artaxerxes on March the 14th, 445 BC. If you plot those days, factoring in the leap years, the nuances of the calendar and so forth, you come to the date of April the 6th. 32 AD, which was the day that is discussed here in Matthew chapter 21, 580 years in advance. God predicted the exact day that Messiah would present himself to the nation Israel. Psalm 118 verse 24 speaks of that day. This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Indeed, the Lord Jesus made this day. God predicted it in the distant past, and Jesus worked it out in the immediate present. For nine months, Jesus had zigzagged back and forth across Galilee on his way to Jerusalem. At the end of chapter 20, he leaves Jericho, and he climbs up the mountain to the holy city. Jesus synchronized his arrival with the date of Daniel's prophecy. That's amazing. Throughout his ministry, Jesus has avoided public demonstrations until we get to chapter 21. This is the only public demonstration that Jesus ever orchestrated. You see, he knew that large crowds awaited him in Jerusalem. At Passover, Jerusalem's normal population of around 200,000 would swell to two and a half million. The city was jammed. The perfect opportunity for the Messiah to present himself to his people. And everything that Jesus did that day was in fulfillment of Scripture. When he told his disciples to fetch the donkey for his ride into the city, Matthew quotes Zechariah 9, verse 9. Behold, your king is coming to you, lowly and sitting on a donkey. As Jesus descended the western slopes of the Mount of Olives, even the cheers of the crowd were lifted from Scripture. Matthew quotes Psalm 118. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Verse 8 says that the crowds performed the Jewish equivalent of rolling out the red carpet. They paved the path that day with palm branches. And thus we celebrate it ever since as Palm Sunday. It's ironic that the crowd who cheered Hosanna on Sunday shouted crucify him on Thursday. You see, Hosanna means save now. And this is what the Jews expected. They looked for a Messiah who would end the Roman occupation and establish an eternal kingdom, a physical kingdom on the earth, right then, right now. And you see, they grew disenchanted when it became obvious that Jesus was concerned not with a physical kingdom, but a spiritual kingdom. He had no interest in their political agenda. The crowd turned on Jesus... When they discovered that his agenda varied from their own. What about you? Does your loyalty depend on Jesus adopting your agenda? Or are you yielded to his will? Will you follow his directions wherever they take you? Even if it's in a direction that you at first may not want to go. On the Sunday before Passover, Jewish families prepared for the Passover By cleaning their house of leaven. Leaven was a type of sin. And they ridded the house of all leaven. And this is what Jesus did on that Sunday before Passover. He cleansed his house, the temple, of the money changers and the merchants. You see, the temple tax had to be paid with a special coin. These Jewish financiers would exchange your normal currency for this special coin, of course, for a fee. There were also sanctioned sacrifices and you could get your unblemished lamb there at a certain price, along with a hefty markup, no doubt. These people were making a buck off God and Jesus was angry. Gentle Jesus, meek and mild. Boy, he had a wild side too. Never underestimate Jesus for a wimp. He was all man. You get him angry and you better get out of his way. Jesus tosses the crooks out on their ear. His motivation was prophesied. Verse 13 quotes Isaiah 56 verse 7. It is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. Jesus spends that night in Bethany. But Monday morning, he is back in action. Jesus curses a barren fig tree. And instantly the tree withers up and dies. Many scholars believe Jesus was serving notice on the nation. The fig tree was a familiar symbol for Israel. Jesus came seeking fruit, but on the nation Israel, all he found was fluff. You see, Israel was full of the leaves of religion, not the fruit of faith and obedience. And as a result, this parable of the fig tree, this demonstration of the fig tree was a lesson God will curse Israel and she'll remain barren for two millenniums. When the disciples marvel at this miracle, Jesus tells them that his action illustrates the power of faith. He says in verse 21, if you have faith and do not doubt, you know, so often doubt gets in the way of our faith. They say a single glass of water is all it really takes to generate enough fog To cover seven city blocks. 100 feet deep. Just a single glass of water. And just a little bit of doubt. Can create a fog over our faith. Can overwhelm our faith. And shut us down. Guys through faith. We can move mountains. If we doubt not. Jesus tells us in verse 22. And all things. Whatever you ask in prayer. Believing. You will receive. When Jesus comes into the temple, he's met by the chief priests who question his authority. Now, Jesus will answer their question if they answer his question first. And he asks them, hey, the baptism of John, where was it from? From heaven or from men? (laughs) Now, he's really backed them into a corner because if they say from men, they'll lose face before the people. John was considered a prophet from God. But if they say from God, then Jesus will turn around and ask him, why didn't you follow him then? Their goose is cooked. And since they don't answer Jesus, he doesn't answer them. Jesus tells a parable aimed at the Jewish religious leaders. Two sons are told by their father to labor in his vineyard. The first son says no, but later he repents and he goes back to work. The second son says, yes, but he never ever goes. Jesus asked in verse 31, which of the two did the will of his father? It was a lesson to the priests. You see, the tax collectors and the harlots, the blatant sinners, they said no to God at first. But they repented at John's preaching and later turned to God. Whereas the Jewish leaders and the priests, they said yes to God verbally, but they said no to him in their hearts. Guys, repentance makes the difference. We've all strayed from God. Some of us in a blatant way, others of us in a self-righteous way. But the question boils down to, are we willing to repent? You may have said no to God, but if you repent, God will let you go to work again. He'll take you back. He'll forgive you and set you free. Next comes the parable of a man who leased his vineyard for a cut of the crop. But when his servants arrive to receive the rent due, they're given a rude welcome. They're mugged, they're beaten, they're killed. In fact, it happens twice. Finally, the owner decides to send his own son. Surely they'll listen to him, but they kill the heir and they seize the vineyard for themselves. And Jesus lets his listeners complete the parable. They say the owner himself will return and he'll punish the evildoers and he'll give the vineyard to new proprietors who cooperate with the owner and will help him bear fruit. And this was God's plan for the kingdom. You see, originally his kingdom was entrusted to the Jews, but they killed the prophets. They eventually killed God's own son. And thus God punished the Jews by giving care of his kingdom to the Gentiles, to you and me, to the church. Thus, God looks to us today with the same desire. He wants us to bear fruit pleasing to Him. Verse 42 quotes Psalm 118, verses 22 and 23. We're told the stone referring to Jesus, the Messiah, which the builders of Judaism rejected, has become the chief cornerstone of the church. He basically explains the parable he just told. There's an ominous warning in verse 44. Whoever falls on this stone, referring to Jesus, will be broken. But on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. In other words, one day, everyone is going to fall down before Jesus. Everyone is going to bow before the Lord. The only question comes is whether you'll bow down freely or forcibly. Jesus is not done with these priests. In chapter 22, he speaks a third parable. A king arranged a marriage for his son. And he sent messengers to deliver the invitations. Some of the recipients though made light of the king's offer. According to verse 6. Others seized his servants. Treated them spitefully and killed them. It all made the king furious. He sent his army to destroy the murderers. And for the last 2,000 years. God has punished the Jews. For their rejection of Jesus Christ. But. There's still a wedding. And the king doesn't want his preparations to go to waste. And so he sends his servants out into the highways and invites whoever will come. It reminds me of the lady who contracted a downtown Boston hotel for her wedding reception. And she went out, she bought the complete package, $13,000 worth. But a couple of days before the wedding, the groom got cold feet. He backed out. The lady immediately went back to the Hyatt for a refund, but to no avail. If she canceled, all she would get back is 10%. So she decided to go on with the party. She threw the party. The first thing she did, though, was to change the menu. She changed the main entree to boneless chicken in honor of the groom. She then sent the invitations to Boston's homeless shelters and rescue missions. That night, Hyatt waiters dressed in tuxedos served hors d'oeuvres to bag ladies and panhandlers. People used to eating half gnawed pizza feasted on chicken cordon bleu. Vagrants sipped champagne. Street people ate chocolate cake. (laughs) What a wild party. This is the picture that Jesus describes. Verse 10 identifies the people who came to the wedding as both good and bad. This is how I would describe the folks tonight in this room. Some of you have lived good lives. Some of you have lived not so good lives. And yet both the good and the bad were strangers to God's table until the Holy Spirit invited them in. Now the difference is no longer our moral status. It's the attire, the clothes that we wear. You see, obviously the guests who were later invited, they weren't prepared. They didn't know they were going to be invited before they left that day. There must have been some clean and festive garments available for them when they came into the room. One man, though, had the audacity not to take advantage of the garments. He kept on his dirty jeans And this is the man that the king takes away and he casts into outer darkness. Understand the lesson. None of us are worthy to to attend this heavenly party. This party God's decided to throw. None of us deserve it. We shouldn't act that way. Rather, we should understand that, that when we enter this party, we need to do so clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. We need his righteousness, not our own. Whether you're good or bad, we all need the righteousness of Christ. Don't trust in your own works. Put your trust in Jesus. In the remainder of chapter 22, these Jews try to do the impossible. They try to argue scripture with its author. Debate theology with the theos. They try to trap Jesus. And they discover that he is the original Bible answer man. They want to trap him in a theological error. They want to try to discredit him. They match wits with God and prove to be dim wits. Understand, these Jews were some proud birds. And Jesus had dealt them a serious blow. He had upset their temple businesses. He had said that tax collectors and harlots were closer to God's kingdom than they were. He had labeled them liars and thieves and murderers. Hey, they weren't about to take this line down. They had been educated in the finest yeshivas, the seminaries of of Judaism. And so now they come to try to trap this country preacher. And they use three biblical brain teasers to try to do it. The first question is verse 17. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now, here's a trap. If Jesus says, yes, pay your taxes, then they can brand him as a Roman sympathizer. The people will flee from him. If he says, no, don't pay your taxes, then they can take him to the Romans and accuse him of treason. They think they've got him. They don't anticipate Jesus's ingenious answer. He holds up a Roman denarii. And he asks, whose inscription is on this? The coin bore the bust of Tiberius Caesar. And that's when Jesus answers. Render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And to God the things that are God. You see money bears the image of our civil authorities. And we all have an obligation to obey the laws of the land. But you and I were made in whose image? In God's image. And we have an even greater obligation to him. What Jesus is saying here is that your money may belong to Caesar. Or in our case, Uncle Sam. But your life, your all, you, yourself, you belong to God. Next, the Sadducees take a shot at Jesus. They were the liberals of Judaism. They didn't believe in the supernatural. They didn't believe in life after death. That's why they were sad, you see. In fact, in debating the more conservative Pharisees, they had this stock story about a woman who had been married seven times. And they asked, therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife of the seven will she be? To them, this whole idea, this this whole perplexity just sort of, to them sort of shined on the silliness of any idea of a resurrection. Notice, though, how Jesus prefaces his answer to them in verse 29. He says, you are mistaken, not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God. Guys, every theological heresy stems from either an ignorance of scripture or a lack of faith in God's power. It applies to everyone. Jesus answers them by stating that there's only one marriage in heaven. Yes, in heaven, we will have meaningful relationships with each other. But those relationships will be eclipsed by the marriage of Jesus and his bride, the church. Jesus offers further proof of the resurrection by quoting Exodus chapter 3, verse 6. There God identified himself to Moses. I am the God of Abraham. Abraham was obviously still alive or God would have said, I was The God of Abraham. In verse 34, the Pharisees ask, Which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus gives them number one, but he also adds the runner up. He quotes Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5 You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And the second is like it You shall love your neighbor as yourself on these two commandments. Hang all of the law and the prophets. In other words, the entire law was a description of how we're supposed to love God and how we're supposed to love one another. Now, no Jew would have ever argued with Jesus's pick for number one. The rabbis had never doubted that we're we're to love the Lord our God with all we've got. But you see, what they had never done was link these two commandments together. What Jesus is teaching here is revolutionary. He says the number one commandment is to love God with all you've got. And the second is like it, or in other words, linked to it. And that is that you should love your neighbor as yourself. What Jesus was saying is that our love for God will produce a love for our neighbor. And if we don't love our neighbor, then there is something wrong with our love for God. It was a revolutionary teaching. Now, three strikes, and you're out of there, baby. The Jews had debated the written word with the living word and had lost. And that's when Jesus poses them a question. And it cuts right to the heart of their difficulty with his claims. The Jews agreed that Messiah was David's son, thus being human what they didn't see in scripture was that Messiah was also Lord or divine, that he was God. And Jesus quotes Psalm 110 in verse 43 there. King David says, the Lord said to my Lord. Now, no one was greater than the king, but God. And yet David here calls the Messiah, my Lord. He's saying there's two people greater than me, the Messiah and God. And that's when Jesus asked the key question. He says, if David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? In other words, think about it. He's human, we know, but he also must be God. And again, Jesus is teaching of his nature. Fully God and yet fully human. In Matthew 23, Jesus deals with these hard-hearted Jews with a hard-hitting sermon. He pulls no punches here. It's a blistering condemnation. The Pharisees are headed to hell. They have no authority, no integrity, no sympathy, no humility. Verse 2, notice they sit in Moses' seat, but they don't have the authority of Moses. No authority. Verse 3, they preach, do as I say and not as I do. They have no integrity. Verse 4, they bind heavy burdens on men's shoulders. They have no sympathy. And in verses 5 through 8, they have no humility. They love the praise of men. They like the seat on the platform where everyone can see them. They like the fancy titles attached to their name. Jesus tells his disciples to avoid those elevated titles. To accept the lowly tasks. Verse 11 says, but he who is greatest among you shall be your servant. And whoever exalts himself will be abased. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. It's interesting to compare Jesus's last public sermon here in Matthew 23 with his first public sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus lists eight beatitudes or blessings. But here in Matthew 23, he lists eight woes or curses. In verses 13, 14, 15, 16, 23, 25, 27, and 29, Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. In verse 13, instead of bridges to heaven, these men had become barriers. They were keeping people from God. In verse 14, they were taking advantage of the people. They faked their devotion to God. In verse 15, these priests were the evangelists of legalism. They were infecting people with the same kind of self-righteous religion that they themselves were dying from. In verse 16, they played word games. They had a graduated system of oaths or vows that they could take. The weaker the oath, the more it gave you justification for telling a white lie or just graying the truth just a little bit. In verse 23, we're told that they majored on the minors and they minored on the majors. You see, they were meticulous with the tithe, so much so that they would get the spice rack out and they would take the little pepper jar and they'd unscrew it and they'd put all the pepper grains down on the cabinet and they'd count out 10% of the pepper grains to make sure they gave a tithe of all that they had. Jesus said, you're doing these things while at the same time, you're ignoring the vital issues like justice and mercy and faith. I mean, don't major on the minors and then minor on the majors. Jesus uses an interesting picture to illustrate this. It's kind of funny. In verse 24, he says, they strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. (laughs) In verse 25, the Jewish priests clean the outside of the cup, their appearance, but it's the inside of the cup, their heart, their soul, their mind that's polluted. In verse 27, these priests are like whitewashed tombs. Oh man, they're so clean on the outside, but inside they're full of death and rottenness and decay. In verse 29, the Jewish priests paid tribute to the Old Testament martyrs, but if they had been alive at the time, Jesus says, they would have helped throw the stones that killed those martyrs. He sums it all up in verse 33. Serpents, brood of vipers, how can you escape the condemnation of hell? In verse 37, Jesus groans. He says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Now, Jesus is not just thinking of the dozen trips or so that he took from Nazareth down to Jerusalem. But his mind here reverts back to his pre incarnate past. And how often Jesus leaned over heaven's rail and tried to draw Israel back to himself. But he identifies the problem you were not willing. Guys, understand, no one will be in hell because God sent them there. They're in hell because they chose to be there. Because they were not willing. God calls, God saves, God forgives. But you've got to be willing to let Him. Understand, this is still Monday. And like a lot of Mondays, it was a tough day. It's been said Mondays are when we think back on the good old days, Saturday and Sunday. On Sunday, Jesus had been cheered by the crowd, but now on Monday, the tide has turned. The Jewish leaders have questioned him. They have formally rejected Jesus. It's evening and Jesus is heading back to Bethany over the Mount of Olives. And from the top of the Mount of Olives, you're treated to one of the most breathtaking views imaginable. You can look back out, you can see the temple in all its grandeur and glory and the disciples point there to the majestic temple and it's as if they're saying to jesus lord all is not wrong with judaism look 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 at the temple it's still such such a beautiful thing jesus sees that temple but jesus doesn't see it as it was he sees it as it will be 38 years later when the roman army comes and destroys the temple And its mighty stones are thrown down. In verse 3, Jesus' disciples ask him privately, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Now, Jesus' answer to their question are the next two chapters. Matthew chapter 24 and 25. And they are known as the Olivet Discourse because they were taught on the Mount of Olives. Jesus begins by mentioning that there will be false messiahs. There will also be wars and rumors of war. But this is standard fare. Don't get alarmed about this. This is just characteristic of the age in which you're living. Next, though, is the beginning of sorrows. And this word sorrow means labor pains. And Jesus lists the signs. Nation against nation. Kingdom against kingdom. In other words, wars will intensify. They will reach a global scale. Do you realize that we had to wait all the way until the last century for the first world war? And we got the second one on top of that. And we've been sitting on the verge of the third one for the last 50 years. Realize 60% of all wartime casualties throughout history Occurred in the 20th century. There will also be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. The New York Times says that every day, 40,000 people die of malnutrition and disease across the planet. Famines and pestilence. And how about earthquakes? Killer quakes, 6.0 and stronger. From 1890 to 1970, a period of 80 years there were 39 such quakes. From 1971 to 1979, just 10 years, there were 51 such earthquakes. The 80s saw 86 killer earthquakes and the 1990s saw another 100 earthquakes. Major quakes are becoming more commonplace each decade. You see, I believe that Mother Nature is in the throes of labor. That the beginning of sorrows has come. The old girl's water's broken. She's fully effaced. She's dilated to ten. The contractions are heavy. God's kingdom is about to be born. Next, Jesus provides a list of events that could take place just before or just after the rapture, or maybe even both. Fierce persecution. Persecution. Many false prophets and vast spiritual deception. Lawlessness will abound. Spiritual passion will wane. While at the same time, the gospel will be preached all over the world. And that may not be done by the church. Remember in the book of Revelation, in the beginning of the Great Tribulation, there are 144,000 witnesses. There are angels that fly through the sky and proclaim the message. There's two witnesses on the streets of Jerusalem that preach the gospel. There are a lot of ways that God can get that done. According to Daniel chapter 9, by the time we get to verse 15 here in chapter 24, we're at the halfway point of this final seven-year judgment. The abomination of desolation is when the Antichrist sets himself up in the temple as God and demands that the world worship him. Understand, if your faith is in Jesus Christ, you'll be watching all this unfold from heaven. Revelation chapter 12 tells us what happens next. Satan will be booted from heaven and he'll take out his rage on Israel. And this is why Jesus says in verse 16, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Again, in verse 20, pray that your flight may not be in the winter or on the Sabbath. Understand he's not talking to Gentile believers. You know, he's talking to people in Judea. He's talking to people who would be concerned about the Sabbath. He's talking to Jews in chapter 24, is addressed to Jews, not the church. Now, verse 21 describes the last three and a half years of the great tribulation. There will be great tribulation such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. According to verse 22, God will limit this colossal devastation, the time of great tribulation to a short duration, lest there be nothing left of planet earth nor of his people Israel. False Christ will precede the second coming of the true Christ. And Jesus says, don't believe it when you hear of his, quote, secret coming. The second coming of Jesus is not a secret coming. It is as visible as a lightning bolt, Jesus says. It'll light up the sky for all to see. Signs will appear in the heaven. Astronomic calamities will take place. They'll all proceed before his return. Jesus writes of these phenomena in verse 29. He says, "Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light; the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heaven will be shaken." Jesus may be describing here the aftermath of a meteor strike. Maybe an asteroid that pummels and hits the earth. Astronomers, by the way, have identified 2000 asteroids with orbits that could collide with the earth in the future. It's happened before, by the way. There are 140 craters around the globe. Apparently, it will happen again. Verse 30 tells us that the citizens of earth will see the sign of the Son of Man. Then Jesus himself, coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10 is an important verse. It comments on Israel's salvation. When Jesus returns, we're told, they will look on him whom they have pierced. They'll repent. Jesus will return and he'll gather up his people Israel. And Jesus says, when the fig tree blossoms, you know that summer is near. And when you see the signs that he's described in this chapter, know that his coming is right around the corner. The generation who sees these signs, will be the last. Understand now, Matthew chapter 24 is not a chronological study of the end times. It's a sermon. That's why we call it the Olivet Discourse. And with any sermon, Jesus gives out the information, then he provides the invitation. In other words, in light of Jesus' return, in light of these signs and the second coming that will follow, Let's be ready for the escape that he offers his people, the church. Let's be ready for the rapture. And the first point he makes about the rapture is in verse 36. He says, but of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my father only. If anyone tells you they know the day that Jesus will return, don't you give them the time of day. Especially, don't give them any money. Date setting is futile. Only the Father knows. And He won't tell. He wants us living every day as if it were the day. We're given only one clue here. Jesus will come for His church when the world least expects it. It will be as in the days of Noah. People will be marrying and giving in marriage. It will be like Business as usual on the earth. Remember, no one believed Noah's warnings. They laughed at the old man. They labeled him a fanatic. I wonder what they thought when it started to sprinkle. (laughs) And then when it began to puddle. And then when it began to flood. The reason I believe that the rapture will occur before this last seven years of great tribulation is that the Bible teaches a doctrine called Imminence. In other words, Jesus' coming is imminent. It can happen at any time. You see, if you put the rapture at the middle of the tribulation, if you believe in a post-trib rapture or a pre rapture or whatever you want to call it, then Jesus can't return until something else happens. And that spoils the idea of imminence. In fact, if you believe that The rapture is not going to take place until the tribulation has already gotten started. Then you can know the day that he's coming. You you can mark off one of the signposts of the tribulation and you can count out the days. You see, for the day to be unexpected, for the rapture to come at any moment, for that day to be unexpected, it has to be the first day of the end times. And that's why I believe in a pre-tribulational rapture. And that's why we need to be ready. Ready? Two men will be in the field. Two women will be grinding in the mill. Suddenly, one will be taken and the other will be left. Remember the shock you felt on September the 11th? Hey, when Christians are caught up, this world will be shook up. There will be unmanned vehicles that will crash. The disappearance of thousands of Christians will stun the world. It'll be an amazing day. There are actually two second comings here in Matthew chapter 24. There is the one that everybody anticipates. Remember, the second coming is not a secret coming. It's like a lightning bolt in the sky. There are warnings. You know in advance it's happening. It's Jesus' return to the earth. Cataclysmic events preceded. A sign appears in the sky, in fact. But the other comes as a surprise. It's not expected. It's Jesus' return for the church. It's the rapture. And it takes place prior to the tribulation. And to the church, he says in verse 44, Therefore, you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming in an hour you do not expect. And he closes with some parables that teach us how to be ready. He says, an owner leaves town and the foreman in charge mistreats the other workers. He becomes cruel. He becomes colonel. He assumes the owner is in no hurry to get home. And the point of the parable is this. Lose touch with Jesus's imminent return. And you lose touch with an incentive to live a godly life, to always be ready. You know, to have to be pure, even as he is pure. Chapter 25, verse 1. We're told the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. You see, five virgins have oil in their lamps. Five don't. The haves refuse to loan to the have-nots. And while the have-nots are away fetching oil, the bridegroom comes. And the virgins miss the wedding party. You see, in the parable, as in all the Bible, the oil represents the Holy Spirit. And what Jesus is saying is that believers who live in the Spirit and who walk in the Spirit and who are trusting in the Spirit will be ready for Jesus' return. People who don't will be left behind. Don't neglect the power of the Holy Spirit. Don't let your light for Jesus burn out. The parables of the talents is also a lesson on stewardship. Nothing we are or control or possess belongs to us. All that we have is owned by Jesus. Our job is to manage his resources well. Use and spend them wisely. In the parable, the owner gives out to his three servants certain talents. A talent, understand, was a large sum of money. It was the equivalent of about a year's wage. He gives five talents to the first man. He gives two talents to the second man and a single talent to the final guy. We can think of talents not so much as money but as opportunities as energy, as years, as talents, as abilities, as skills, as spiritual gifts, in fact. Any asset that the Lord may give to us. Now, two of these men used their talents wisely. They doubled their money. The owner comes back and he commends them with words, I know you'll want to hear one day. Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. But the third man, he buries his talent. And he looks at his, and look with me in verse 25 at his excuse. Here's what, here's the reason he did it. He said, I was afraid and went and hid your talent in the ground. The fear factor. Guys, fear is a robber. And notice what happens. This man's talent gets taken away, it's given to the man who has 10. When it comes to resources or with money or with ability, whatever you call talents, God's rule is simple. Use them or lose them. If you try to sit on your talent, God's going to take it away from you and give it to somebody who will use it. But if you use it, he'll bless it and he'll give you more in return. Notice Jesus mentions two men who invest their talent and reap a return. He mentions one guy who buries his talent. But here's what I always wondered. He doesn't mention a man who invests his talent and gains no return. You ever thought about that? Why does he not mention that scenario? I think it's intentional. I believe he doesn't mention that scenario because it's impossible. There is no way that you can invest your talent in the work of God and not see a return. You use your talent and God will make sure it gets a return. And you're blessed and God uses it in a wonderful way. There is no investment in the kingdom of God that goes without a return. Joel chapter 3 verse 14. foresees the day when the nations of the earth are gathered for judgment in the valley of decision. Here Jesus mentions the same event at the end of chapter 20, 24. Or 25 I'm sorry. In verse 32, he says, All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another, as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And here's how they'll be separated. How did they treat Jesus' brethren? To the sheep, he says, When I was hungry, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me drink. When I was a stranger, you took me in. When I was naked, you clothed me. When I was sick, you visited me when I was in prison. You came to me. Well, when, Lord, when did we do these things? We don't remember when you were in need. And that's when Jesus answers them in verse 40. Inasmuch as much as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. Hey, you know, Jesus takes all this real personal. It's his creation. He created human beings. And when you help another human being, he takes it personal. You're helping him. But when you slight another person, he takes that personal too. You've slighted the Son of God. You see, the goats ignored the needy. And Jesus said in doing so, they were ignoring him. It upsets him. It gets his goat. You didn't get that, did you? You know, these verses have a personal application, but they also have a prophetical application. In the tribulation, Jesus' brethren are the Jews. And he will judge the nations based on their benevolence or their lack of it toward Israel. And in the end, Jesus will fulfill God's promise in Genesis to Abraham when he said, I will bless those who bless you. And I will curse those who curse you. Next Sunday night, we're going to tackle the last three chapters in Matthew. Which will take us from the Last Supper all the way through the resurrection. And so it'll be an exciting study next Sunday night. You want to make sure you're here. Let's pray before we're dismissed. Father, we love you and we thank you for tonight. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Lord, we've touched on many things. Father, we pray that you'll speak to our hearts. Help us, Lord, to meditate on those things you've you've brought to surface in our lives. You've made an issue in our hearts. Help us, Lord, to deal with those things tonight. Lord, help us to love you with all our hearts and all our soul and all our mind. And Lord, we're excited about the prospects that we are living in the last day. That mother nature is in labor. That the kingdom of God is about to be born. And we're so excited, Lord, that your return could happen at any moment. We, we may, our next meeting together, Lord, may be in heaven around your throne. And that's so cool. But Lord, together, we, we all look forward to your soon return. Lord, we're concerned about our loved ones that don't know you yet. Use us, Lord, to reach them with the love of Jesus. But Lord, we are so excited about your return. And the whole prospect, Lord, of seeing you face to face. We love you, Lord. We thank you for the opportunities you give us. Help us use our talents well for your glory. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.